The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at the Woodville Plantation in Allegheny County. George Washington faced one of the toughest tasks of his presidency when farmers rose up in rebellion against the federal government here in western Pennsylvania. I'm your host Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Whiskey Rebellion is Kevin Copper, Assistant Professor of History at Westmoreland County Community College, and Rob Winhorst former president of the Neville House Associates. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Kevin, you're a second time guest, but remind us of your background. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons that I'm drawn to this era is because I'm fascinated by how scientific rationalism and enlightenment philosophy became the violent revolutions that shook the foundation of Western civilization and brought in and ushered the modern era. So I began to study this at the graduate level and the doctoral level, and then I've devoted much of my professional career to better understanding this period. I don't think that the events and figures of this era could be conjured from the mind of a fiction writer. It's just such a wonderful period to study. Rob? Well, I grew up in the area uh, literally less than a mile and a half from here, and uh, I've always been fascinated by the, uh, the 18th century history, particularly how important um, how many important historical events happened in the 18th century in Western Pennsylvania. Um, the Whiskey Rebellion is just one of the most pivotal yet under underappreciated events in the 18th century. And it's something that I truly believe um, had the Whiskey Rebellion not happened when it did, I truly believe you may have seen the Civil War happen possibly 20 or 30 years sooner. Can we talk about this area a little bit? What was this place like in the 1790s? Well, the first thing that you need to understand to understand this area uh, in the 1790s is that over the previous four decades, it had been ravaged by war and uncertainty, starting with the French and Indian War in 1754, moving towards the American Revolution, even the jurisdictional dispute between Pennsylvania and Virginia, known as Dunmore's War. Uh, Pontiac's Rebellion had occurred here. So the people that lived here had to be self-reliant. And one of the main things that you need to know about this period and this area is that there was a strong emphasis on the militia. And democratic traditions were forged into militias because people were chosen for leadership positions, not because of wealth and not because of birth, but because of their prowess uh, in the battlefield. So this was an area that was unique uh, the Trans-Appalachian region in all of North America. I also would like to add that 
Um, this is really, in terms of um, business growth, uh, this is a pivotal area in the late 18th century. Uh, keep in mind, you've got the new federal government in the early 1790s um, looking at where is America going to grow, and it's going to grow here through Pittsburgh. In fact, in, uh, in Pittsburgh, in, in the 1790 census, uh, it lists 396 people living in the city of Pittsburgh. By 1820, there's over 11,000 people living in that same area. So at no other time in Western Pennsylvania's history do you get that sort of exponential growth. And along with that growth, you've got numerous business opportunities, particularly as it relates to whiskey. Now we have this idea that the revolution ends and, and that's the hard part, it's over. But uh, there's a lot of challenges for the new federal government. So what were some of the challenges that the 1790s brought on for, for the United States? Well, I would tell you, arguably, the first is to remain financially solvent. Um, the federal government at this time period has, uh, just prior to the 1790s, has about $75 million in debt um, around the world. Um, in addition to that, they, they, there was talk within the federal government to, about assuming the state debts that they had acquired during the revolution, and that's another... Um, uh, that's about 25 million of that 75 million. On top of that, just simply to run the government, it's costing anywhere between six and seven hundred thousand dollars. So right off, right off the bat, they need um, about 75 million dollars to run the government. Yeah, and to dovetail some of the, on, on his comments, uh, some of the challenges that are being faced is that uh, we are a debtor nation. And we had not established credit, so the financiers of the revolution, like Robert Morris, hadn't been paid. Many of the soldiers hadn't been paid, but we were in a sea of trouble, both domestic and foreign. So the British Royal Navy is impressing American ships. The Indian Wars are raging in the West. Uh, New Spain had closed the navigation of the Mississippi River. Uh, there are separatist movements, and Little Turtles Confederacy is waging what would be a 15-year war against the federal government to, to keep the hold of their ancestral lands. When you look at 1794, to, to elaborate a little bit on what he said, um, 1794 is truly, truly a pivotal year for the, the new government. And it really, um, a lot of things went right in 1794 for the federal government. Yeah, one of the biggest fears is that there would be the repudiation of federal sovereignty and that people in the West who I'd mentioned earlier had really forged their own, uh, their own culture based upon environmental uh, and also religious conditions here, uh, that they would not be loyal. And in fact, they had fostered a deep sense of distrust for Eastern elites and certainly the people operating the federal city in Philadelphia. Kevin brings up a really important word for, uh, if you want to summarize what happens in the Whiskey Rebellion in one word, it's sovereignty. Who has the right to tell you what to do? Um, it's a point that Kevin has made when I've talked to him before this, and uh, uh, Thomas Slaughter in his book on the Whiskey Rebellion, he talks about that's the, the main, if you have to boil down the Whiskey Rebellion to one word, sovereignty. Who has the right to tell you what to do? And Hamilton's plan, in part, from the 1790 report on public credit, is the foundation is the belief is that you can tie all citizens of a nation together through federal taxation. So no one thought that this experiment in democracy was going to work. And after the economic depression of the 1780s and the Shazites in Massachusetts, uh, Washington really, whenever he set that first precedent by adding so help me God to the 
oath of office uh, was facing a lot of difficulties and how to keep the nation together. Uh, basically, what Rob was saying is that could there have been a civil war, the Western interests versus Eastern elites? And certainly whenever you see Easterners come out West and you read their accounts, it seemed like a different world to them. We mentioned uh, the president, George Washington, another name, Alexander Hamilton, very popular right now. How's Washington doing in the 1790s as our first commander in chief? Well, I would tell you as, as a commander in chief, um, he's very well suited for what's going on here. Um, when, when the Whiskey Rebellion does break out in 1794 and eventually there is a federal response, he as a sitting president leads a 13,000 man army west um, bigger than any army he ever commanded during the American Revolution. Leads them west as far as Bedford, Pennsylvania. And uh, really, um, I think bureaucratically establishes that it's not going to fail. Yeah, and the best thing that I can see, or at least one of the, one of the best things, is that he seeks counsel from his subordinates and he follows the letter of the law. So he had to use the Militia Act of 1792. He realized that. He had to get a Supreme Court justice to declare Western Pennsylvania in a state of rebellion. So he's very careful knowing that everything that he is doing is a precedent and he'll be judged by subsequent presidents and generations on his actions. So clearly it works. Uh, he's able to put down the rebellion, if you will, and uh, to establish federal sovereignty in the West. If you look at, at Washington's style of management, um, he, as Kevin said, he's truly, um, he seeks the counsel of those around him and he, he, he makes sure that he has the best people in place around him. Not only militarily as he comes west, he brings with him some um, really well-trained and um, uh, really good commanders. Um, Harry Lee, uh, Daniel Morgan, um, uh, Alexander Hamilton, mm -hmm. um, and they're part of the, the, the troops as they move west across the mountains. But even when you look at his cabinet, he, uh, I, I've often made the contention that uh, his cabinet is one of the most phenomenal cabinets yeah. ever put together. Thomas Jefferson as your Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph as your Attorney General, Henry Knox as your Secretary of War, and Alexander Hamilton as your Secretary of Finance. Yeah, and you have to realize that the federal city is Philadelphia at this time. And 1793 witnessed the largest yellow fever outbreak in American history. So literally one-tenth of the population of Philadelphia died as a consequence of that. So he's able to manage this public health crisis. He's able to deal with foreign and domestic threats. And he's able to juggle uh, with, the, uh, with the aid and help of his subordinates the issues in Western Pennsylvania. Whenever we think of whiskey, we think of Kentucky today. But Western Pennsylvania beat them to it by quite a bit. Can we talk about uh, farmers in this area, what they were doing, and, and why whiskey? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Kentucky. Kentucky by 1791 was an unofficial state. Um, and I think realistically had Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania's um, participation in this rebellion not sparked up when it did in 1794, all of this would have happened downriver in Kentucky eventually. Um, and it, it, they, they truly had a similar circumstance to what was going on here in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, the word whiskey comes from the Gaelic term meaning water of life. And it's different from other alcohols that you can make it as strong as you wish. Now it was viewed by the upper class that the alcohol of choice would be wine and that for the lower classes or the middling sorts, they, they would drink whiskey. 
Remember, they can't get their products across the Appalachian Mountains because there's no navigable waterway to reach port. So they have to use the Mississippi River. Well, sadly, the Mississippi River is closed because of New Spain's policies. So they begin to get their excess crops and turn that into whiskey, it becomes the currency of this area. Because if you have that bottle of whiskey, you know at some point down the line, you're able to exchange that for cash. So coinage is scarce, but whiskey is plentiful in this area. I was gonna say, to add to that too, um, we talked a little bit earlier about 1794 being such a pivotal year. Unbeknownst to everybody, um, John Jay is in Europe uh, negotiating a treaty in 1794, which he successfully does. And again, had that information maybe been public or had it been, had it been known that he was over there negotiating uh, to open up the waterways west down the Mississippi and down the Ohio River, a lot of the arguments of the farmers, uh, the local farmers that were uh, fomenting rebellion, uh, probably would have been assuaged. They would have, you know, it, it would have opened up the rivers and, and that truly would have allayed some of their, their concerns. Uh, what were they making this whiskey out of? What was the crop in this area that made that uh, the, the, the revenue source? I would tell you predominantly rye. Rye. Um, rye's very easy to grow. Um, it's, uh, it's in great abundance. You literally have to do nothing other than throw the seed in any open field. Um, they're also doing a, a little bit with corn, um, and eventually that becomes what uh, Kentucky's noted for. Um, but predominantly it's rye whiskey here. And in fact, the, the whiskey coming out of Western Pennsylvania was viewed as the best whiskey that was produced in America at the time. And even though Eastern elites might like to talk about drinking wine, uh, they also like to get their hands on a bottle of good old Monongahela rye. Now, we mentioned a name, Alexander Hamilton. He's really pivotal here. He understands how the system works. Taxation's a big part of how he views American success. What's his plan to, uh, to make the government more solvent? Well, he issues the report on public credit in 1790. And one of the big features of that is the assumption of state debts into federal debt. And that would be a way to connect the states to the federal government. Another part of that is increase in tariffs to raise money for the federal government. Uh, he also wants to put forth this excise tax to open the purse of the people because there was no way, as Rob was pointing out, that the United States government was gonna remain fiscally stable. It was in a terrible condition. So he sees that it is the best way to pull America together, uh, but also it is the best way to get sovereignty across the mountains. Well, uh, to, to add to what he said too, um, one of the things that Hamilton did note in his report um, was that uh, he felt that the tariffs on external goods um, were kind of at their max. Um, mm -hmm. He felt that if you raise the tariffs any further, it was going to cripple the, the, the new economy of the federal government. So he was more, he, he was truly advocating that they needed to come up with an internal tax, something on uh, domestically produced goods. So, you know, with that, I think Hamilton, and he's vilified for this even to, even to the present time. Um, Hamilton truly understood though, to be able to tax, you have to be able to enforce the tax. And again, there's that, that, that sovereignty. Does the federal government have the right to make you pay a tax? Hamilton, I think, understood that it needed to be established that you need to pay federal taxes. And he was going to, I, I, and I think, intelligently, if you're going to have a fight, let's make sure it's across the mountains where it's not going to hit our major cities. 
Yeah, and to dovetail on what Rob's saying, you can argue that the Whiskey Rebellion has very little to do with whiskey. It has everything to do with federal sovereignty. Uh, this doesn't start out as a violent event, the resistance to this tax. Uh, it's a political movement. So can we talk about maybe how the early resistance comes out? It does have some violence even yeah. in its roots, though. Um, you know, there are, from the outset, as, even as early as September of 1791, they're tarring and feathering some tax collectors. They're burning the tax collectors' houses. Um, keep in mind, John Neville, um, he's the inspector of revenue. He's the head of the tax collectors in this quadrant of Pennsylvania. Um, but the tax collectors that are under his control um, are really suffering greatly. Their houses are being burned, their tax offices are being burned, um, tax offices that are located in towns are having the windows smashed out. These guys are being taken out into the countryside and tarred and feathered and left tied to trees. Um, it's a, a brutal, brutal time for anyone trying to collect the federal excise tax. The best way to understand the Western insurrection is to break it down, in my view, into three groups. And those are moderates, radicals, and zealots. Uh, the moderates believe that the best way to deal with the tax and to redress their grievances is to do it through the established political system. Radicals, like Daniel Hamilton, are doing what Rob's talking about, and that's attacking individuals, the brutality of tar and feathering. I mean, that's going to leave someone permanently scarred, both mentally and physically. And then there's others like Herman Husband, who was going by the name Toscope Death, and I put him in the category of zealots, is that they had interpreted uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation to become millennialists, that they believed that the world was going to end in the year 1800, and that that was the end of days and the return of the final judgment of Jesus. Uh, and they believed that the revolution was the, in part to create a just society, and that's based upon their interpretation of the Acts of the Apostles. So kind of like the diggers in European history or le levelers of the 17th century, is that they believed that this was the new Jerusalem, not the Sodom that was called by many of the radicals, and that we had gone astray from the original intent of our revolution. We mentioned tax offices being burned, tarring and feathering. This sounds a lot like Boston in 1775. Is that a fair comparison? Um, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I, I would say no, um, because at this point in time, they do have fair representation. Um, it, uh, their representatives are um, really uh, presenting their case to the federal government. In fact, throughout uh, from 1791, all the way into 1792 and, and even right before the, uh, the actual uh, rebellion opens up in July of 1794, there are modifications being made to this tax um, through uh, federal amendments to the law. Um, and even, even as uh, in June of 1794, as the federal marshal is on his way out here to deliver writs to appear in court, they make an, an amendment to the tax law that says you no longer have to go to Philadelphia to appeal your case. You can appeal it at the state courts, which would be, uh, would, would be being heard locally. Um, in this area, it would have been Greensburg. Yeah, and that's one of the major bones of contention for the Westerners is that prior to that amended change, you had to travel to Philadelphia. Most of them could not, you know, farmers don't get to go on vacation. So most of them couldn't leave their homesteads and they certainly didn't have enough time or money to get to Philadelphia. And the excise tax had to be paid in coin. And as I pointed out before, uh, coinage was very scarce in the West. Uh, who are some of the political leaders involved early on? Because there are some big names here. 
Uh, there's a lot of political leaders that are involved at this point that later on will become um, very big names in, in political history. Um, I would say probably one of the biggest at this point in time is Albert Gallatin. Um, he's definitely a moderate. He, uh, he is advocating that um, um, we take legislative steps to correct what the uh, Westerners uh, perceive as a problem, but Gallatin uh, Gallatin's interesting because he had uh, he had won a seat um, in the House or the Senate, I forget which one, um, but th they had thrown him out of the Senate because they believed that uh, they, they said his opponents had said that he wasn't a, a U.S. citizen. Well, if you actually look at it, nobody was prior to 1789. Um, but uh, Gallatin at that point is one of the local representatives here, and he's, um, um, he's very much an advocate. He makes sure he gets um, involved with uh, some of the local conventions that are discussing what to do about this whiskey excise tax. And he, uh, he really makes sure that he's, he's a moderate. Um, later in life, he says it's one of the worst political moves that he ever made. Um, but eventually, he goes on to become the Secretary of Treasury for Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, longest serving Secretary, Secretary of, Treasury. of Treasury. I'll do the radicals, since Rob did the moderates. <laughs> uh, you have individuals like uh, John and Daniel Hamilton. And these are brothers that served in the American Revolution, and they form what's known as the Mingo Creek Association. And that is individuals that are represented in militias uh, that believe that overt resistance to the tax is the most necessary. You also have burgeoning Democratic-Republican societies. So this is going to be Jefferson's Revolution of 1800. It's going to set the political stage in America uh, from 1800 until the election of John Q in 24. So you have a different political ideology that really starts in the ratification argument over the Constitution and the inclusion of the Bill of Rights. So some radicals like David Bradford, uh, they believe in this new political ideology. Uh, he's also kind of a, a Jacobin, is that he wants to be the self-styled Robespierre of the West. So these individuals believe violent resistance, attacking tax collectors and uh, destroying private property is the best means to resist this change. Uh, just to, to add to that too, interestingly enough in Western Pennsylvania, politically you've got um, Federalists um, that are in charge and elected, um, including um, guys like John Neville. Uh, General Neville was uh, elected as uh, the Inspector of Revenue. Um, his son, Presley, uh, whose house we're in front of right here, um, Presley uh, was in November of 1794, elected as one of the first Burgesses of the city of Pittsburgh. So you still have this little bastion of federalism, and the Federalists are really the guys that are running Pittsburgh at that point in time. Um, but there is really a sort of town and country mentality. Um, even though Pittsburgh is fewer than 500 people, it's, it's centrally the, the stronghold of the Federalists. Everything around it, it's in a sea of Democratic Republicans. John Neville is going to become a major player in this story. We're here at Woodville Plantation. Uh, Rob, can you talk about who Neville was and, and the significance of this place? Well, John Neville um, um, really is a fascinating character and really, truly, I, I would tell you, represents the sort of Horatio Alger rags to riches story. He, uh, he and his family start out in Occoquan, Virginia, just which is today a suburb of D.C. Um, very early on in his life, he moves out to Winchester, Virginia, just prior to the opening of the Cumberland Gap for westward expansion. And he establishes um, some businesses there, a small plantation, 
And um, I always tell people, uh, when people ask me, well, how did he make all of his money? He, by the 1790s, Neville and his family are the wealthiest individuals in Western Pennsylvania by far. Um, but Neville really makes his money, uh, John Neville makes his money um, through a number of things. He's what we today would call a commercial farmer. Um, he has these large plantations in which he's raising everything from rye um, that he eventually distills into whiskey, um, but all sorts of other crops too. He raises cattle. Um, he's a, uh, a, a large-scale whiskey producer. At the, in the 1790s, he has the largest still in western Pennsylvania. It's a 500-gallon still. Um, just to give you an idea, that's the size of most people's dining room in this day and age. So he's got this enormous still and he's producing tons of whiskey. Um, but ultimately he makes a lot of his money off of land speculation. He's one of those guys who always knows to buy land ahead of where the population's moving. So while he makes this small fortune in Winchester, he realizes the population's going to move westward and that's when in the early 1770s he moves to uh, Pittsburgh and begins to buy land here, including where we're sitting today. This One of his first land acquisitions was the acreage that you see here that's known as Woodville. Eventually, he owns uh, about 10,000 acres, all told, but contiguously in this area, it's about 1,100 acres, um, and he owns this very large farm, not only with the Woodville house here, but with uh, the much more notorious Bower Hill house that we're going to talk about, I would assume, in a little bit. Yeah, what, to, to understand Neville, I mean, he's really the titan of this area in that age. He was part of Braddock's campaign. Uh, he was in charge of Fort Pitt at the start of the revolution. He was at Princeton, Trenton, Monmouth. Uh, he and his son were taken captive in, in Charleston in 1780. Uh, so he's really the type of figure that you can use as a lens uh, to understand not only American history in general, but Western Pennsylvania and the expansion over the mountains. He's also, uh, just to add to that, he also is um, very well liked by the farmers up mm -hmm. until 1794. <laughs> um, even um, William Miller, um, you know, and I, I, we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute, but um, Neville goes with David Lennox, the federal marshal, to serve writs to appear in court for not having registered your stills or paid the tax. He serves a writ on William Miller, and that's really what touches off the, the Whiskey Rebellion or the Whiskey Insurrection. Um, when he tries to serve William Miller this writ, along with the federal marshal, William Miller, William Miller refuses to take it. William Miller at one point writes later on that he, he felt his blood boil at seeing Neville there to lead this federal marshal to my house. M Miller was a big supporter of Neville. Miller was um, one of the, the local farmers that um, Neville, uh, Neville was a very popular figure in this area. There's, uh, we have documentation that uh, during um, poor times for crops, he would financially help many of the farmers in the area that were, were suffering. Um, he's very popular politically. He had been elected to the state legislature uh, several years earlier. Um, so I think a lot of the farmers may have felt um, that Neville had maybe turned his back on them. Yeah, one, one kind of funny side note to that is whenever David Lennox was with Neville to serve those writs, he commented that he couldn't understand the accents of the people, that he couldn't understand what they were saying. So that really shows the difference between Eastern elites coming here that they don't even understand uh, their version of English. So we have um, a U.S. Marshal who doesn't understand accents. We have, uh, we have John Neville going out in the countryside dispensing writs. Take us through the uh, the blow up. How does this all start? Well, uh, 
it, it all starts uh, t Tuesday, July 15th. Um, uh, really, um, that afternoon, um, Lennox had come across the mountains um, with 60 writs that he was going to distribute in Fayette, Westmoreland, Washington, and Allegheny counties. He made his way through Fayette, Westmoreland, and Washington County with very yeah. little to no resistance. The writs were served. Um, if you refused the writ or you didn't show up for the court appearance, the fine was $250. That's a monumental amount. Um, keep in mind that John Neville's Bower Hill estate in that year um, was inventoried after the, the, the fire at Bower Hill uh, during the rebellion. Um, Neville's Bower Hill estate and everything that he owned, everything that was in the houses, all his clothing, all of that was valued at about $4,500. So that puts into perspective, $250 in that period is a lot of money, particularly for some of these rural farmers. Um, so. Lennox distributes his writs uh, throughout those counties with no problem. He has five remaining when he gets to Allegheny County, and he asks Neville to take him down to this area. The area that they were going to distribute these writs in was an area that had previously been part of Washington County, um, but then recently had been ceded over to Allegheny County. Um, today it would be where uh, South Park, Bethel Park, um, parts of Upper St. Clair, uh, the part that runs along the border between Washington and Allegheny County. Um, it's also, not coincidentally, um, really the center of open rebellion. Uh, Mingo Creek Church is uh, approximately two miles from where these writs were going to be served. Um, so I think there was a little more to it that maybe um, Lennox knew this was sort of the hotbed of the open rebellion and that uh, maybe he needed a, a little backup. So he takes Washington with him and they get to the farm um, of William Miller, um, which was adjacent to uh, where the Oliver Hill Miller homestead is in South Park today. Um, and it's at that point um, Lennox attempts to distribute the writ. Um, William Miller refuses. Neville announces that he sees some farmers coming up over the hill and uh, that he announces to Lennox that they should retreat. Um, and it's at that point during their retreat that uh, some gunshots are fired. Um, I would tell you I don't believe that there was any malice intended. It was probably just somebody that was a little overzealous. But uh, in any event, it's perceived by Neville and Lennox that they're being fired upon. Uh, and then, like, this is going to escalate as uh, more members of the Mingo Creek Association begin to uh, gather and then they go to Bower Hill uh, to confront Neville. Sadly, what occurs is the death of a man named James McFarlane. And the accounts uh, tell us that it was done under a flag of truce, uh, that he thought that the hostilities had ended and it was okay for him to come out of cover, and he's shot to death. They end up burying him at the side of a hill of a cemetery that was reserved for children. And that's really the symbol of innocence of this individual who was, by all accounts, a great patriot having served in the American Revolution. Uh, and the, really the, that Bower Hill, which is eventually burned, uh, was the symbol of the, of the federal government uh, and what they believed to be a tyrannical force in the West to many of the rebels by this period. Well, I talk a little bit about McFarland. I've got to take the opposing view on that one. Uh, as the sole representative of federalism in today's world, um, McFarland, um, it, you know, it, 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 
Neville and Lennox retreat. We, we, we were talking a little bit earlier. Neville, Neville retreats back to Bower Hill. Lennox goes back to the fort in Pittsburgh, uh, Fort Fayette, with the uh, federal soldiers. And uh, I think that was the smart move. Um, Neville, uh, first thing the next morning, the, um, the Mingo Creek Association had mustered 48 men to come out to Bower Hill to demand the records from uh, Neville. Um, if you can envision up on Bower Hill, um, the Bower Hill house looked a lot like Woodville does today, but except the full two stories. Um, behind the Bower Hill house in sort of a, what they call a chevron shape or an L shape, were the dependencies, the kitchen, the dairy, the blacksmith shop, um, some of the chicken houses. And at the end of that L, just opposite of the house, was the, uh, the slave quarters. So on the second day, uh, on July 16th, as these farmers under John Holcroft, uh, Tom the Tinker, they march out and they're demanding these tax records. They're standing in the middle of those outbuildings in the main house, sort of in that horseshoe shape. And it, uh, uh, Neville tells them to stand off, to leave. Um, they don't, they, they want the, the tax records. Um, they wanted Lennox, actually. Um, but on a signal from Neville, Neville blows some sort of a horn from inside the house and it's on that signal that gunfire erupts from the slave quarters. Neville is armed as slaves and they uh, fire into the crowd of farmers. Um, ironically, one of the balls strikes um, young Oliver Miller um, who is uh, um, perishes that, that evening. Um, that's one of the things that really incenses the farmers to the point where the following day, July 17th, um, 500 of them muster at Fort uh, Couch's Fort uh, over near present-day uh, South Hills Village. If anybody is familiar with South Hills Village in Bethel Park, um, there's a McDonald's across the street. That was the location of Couch's Fort. Um, it's about five miles from Bower Hill, um, and they march out from Couch's Fort. Um, 500 men. It's and, it, and from everything that I've read, it's a very organized military approach with. James McFarland at its head. Um, he was a major during the revolution and uh, he organizes them into columns. They're marching out. They have a drummer, uh, one reference talks about. Um, at some point they have some sort of flags, um, um, but they march out in columns. When they get to Bower Hill, they surround the compound. They're not gonna fall into that same trap by marching into the middle of the buildings. Um, and they begin to, uh, there's a dialogue. Um, there's some gunfire erupts. Um, and this goes on throughout the afternoon of the 17th. But um, with the point I wanted to make with James McFarland is, uh, and we, we talked a little bit about this earlier, James McFarland, from all accounts, had taken up a position in the woods. Um, on any plantation, if you look at most plantations in the 18th century, everything in the immediate area around the houses and the outbuildings is devoid of trees. Um, not only for building but for firewood and things like that. So you usually have this large open area with trees at a distance. Um, McFarland had taken up a position in the trees which we think was somewhere between 150 maybe 200 yards away. Keep in mind by the second day's battle Neville had retreated to Pittsburgh and had told the commander uh, Thomas Butler at Fort Fayette he needed some help out at Bower Hill because he was under attack. Uh, Thomas Butler, new commander at Fort Fayette in Pittsburgh, uh, just had taken command July 1st, has 48 men under his watch. Um, he's in the middle of now open rebellion in western Pennsylvania, doesn't know what to do, so he sends 12 soldiers out to help Neville defend Bower Hill. 
Now keep in mind, the previous day there had been 50, 50 men at Bower Hill uh, in terms of farmers. That's four to one odds. By the, the next day, there's 500. So these soldiers are outnumbered 40 to one. And I often wonder what, what was going through their minds as they marched out here, knowing they were gonna be outnumbered. But when they got there and realized they're outnumbered 40 to one, they took up positions within the Bower Hill House, exchanged gunfire, gunfire for most of the afternoon. But at one point, supposedly during a truce, um, James McFarland steps out from behind a tree in the tree line and is dispatched with a musket ball. If you know anything about 18th century weaponry, um, these soldiers are armed with Charleville muskets left over from the American Revolution. Um, a musket like that is accurate maybe at 50 yards, maybe at 75 yards where you could actually hit something you're aiming at. At 150 yards, I would tell you it's just pure bad luck on James McFarland's part. <laughs> uh, one funny account that comes from this situation is that Presley Neville is late getting to the battles. So it begins and then he's traveling and when he gets to the back of the rebel army, he yells, are there any gentlemen among you? to the rebels, which as soon as he yells that, they immediately turn their guns on him and take him captive. So apparently there weren't any gentlemen among the rebels in that group. So why, why do you think he did that? I'm curious, I have my own speculation, but. I think that he hoped that he would find someone who was reasonable and would negotiate, uh, but I think that he probably should have known better. I, I, I agree with you on both <laughs> counts. Uh, I think it was a rather foolish move. Very fortunately for not only Presley, but uh, Henry Brackenridge and a couple of the other guys that had accompanied him, um, they, there were apparently gentlemen among the group, Bob, <laughs> and these guys um, actually uh, realized if left to their devices, the Presley and those guys probably would have been killed. Um, they, they do uh, conveniently, um, some of the gentlemen in the group took, took these, these fellows like Presley and took them under their guard and just conveniently happened to look away and those men escaped. Yeah, Daniel Hamilton made certain that they were able to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting, what begins to happen at, at Bower Hill is that uh, the rebellion itself seemed to be, at least members, certain members were okay with it when it focused against tax collectors. But whenever you put federal troops in Bower Hill and you are given the decision that you have to fire upon an American soldier, uh, to someone like Daniel Hamilton, that was very difficult. To someone like David Bradford, he didn't want to go to Bower Hill. So it was one thing it seemed for them to resist taxation by going after individual collectors. Firing on an American soldier was a different, a different way, a different thing. And, and that, you know, really, I think that would have been probably the most troublesome thing for these the local farmers. Keep in mind, they're not worried about, uh, you know, we talked earlier that eventually a 13,000 man uh, army of levies or militia comes west under Washington's command. Um, the farmers at that point in time are not really worried about that. They're worried about the three or 4,000 man army that's in the Ohio country at the same time, uh, preparing to fight the Native Americans um, right at, in July. They're marching north from what today would be Cincinnati, Ohio, and really pushing the Native Americans towards Lake Erie. And what ultimately culminates in, uh, on August 20th of 1794 at, um, uh, when Anthony Wayne defeats the Native Americans at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. So, the local farmers are worried that Washington's going to recall Anthony Wayne with the federal army. And let me just tell you, in reading from Wayne's perspective, Wayne is beyond irritated with that. He, um, at one point, talks about he doesn't want to receive any dispatches because he's worried 
He's pushing the Native Americans. He's got everything set up in the, in the Ohio country to defeat the natives. He's worried that right when he's ready to strike, they're going to call him back to Pittsburgh and to fight his own countrymen. Bower Hill is going to be completely destroyed by this group. Um, what's the federal response? When does Washington find out? What does he say? Well, the big moment really occurs after Bower Hill, whenever there's a muster at Braddock's Field. And the most significant development at that event is that the, the Mingo Creek Association formed their own court. And by forming their own court, they're challenging the jurisdiction and sovereignty of the federal government. So Washington has to act. Now, prior to this, uh, he's preparing the military by putting the governors of New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia on notice to get uh, soldiers into the army. Uh, he's also sending a peace commission out to try to uh, you know, tap into a peaceful settlement with, with some of the people that are here as well. But as soon as they begin to have extra legal courts and the ability to try people uh, with using their own sovereignty, the federal government has to act. One of the one of the interesting things I think the, the one of the very first things he does when he gets word of this in early August, um, Washington calls for what he says is a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer for the nation, and he basically says to everybody, "Time out. Let's all take a step back, take a breather, and and let's look at this." Um, I think it buys him a little bit of time. Um, I think it also buys him. A little more time because if you consider that this this appeal is going to go out via at best case scenario it's going to get to Western PA two or three weeks later um, so it, it he's basically calling for a timeout and I think in the hopes that maybe the local farmers change their mind yeah you had people within the administration like Hamilton that were pushing for a violent solution a military solution well, Washington is the steady hand that was needed during that. And it seems as though he's trying every possible way to maintain peace. Even though he doubts a peaceful solution is possible, uh, he wants to try that. One funny story is he sends this agent out named George Clymer. And uh, George Clymer is from the elite class. And one thing that you find is that whenever you get across the mountains, you would think that these settlements are isolated, but everyone knew each other. There was either economic or familiar ties that people had or through their militias. And so he was disappointed because as he's beginning to travel from the east, uh, people already know that he's on the way. So he decides to go in disguise and he switches position with his servant. So his servant's gonna to pretend to be the federal agent and he's gonna to pretend to be a servant. Well, this man's never been a servant in his life. So you can imagine that he doesn't know how to handle his horse correctly. So whenever they stop, everyone's looking, who's this guy, the servant can't handle the horse. He goes to one of the taverns in Pittsburgh and he clearly does not fit in with the people at the taverns. So it just kind of shows the aloofness of some of the agents and some of the people in the East uh, that even in disguise, they couldn't pretend to be from the culture in this area. Uh, Braddock's Field, you have really what is the biggest city on the frontier, Pittsburgh itself, threatened. Can we talk about that? Actually, I would argue Pittsburgh at that point probably isn't the biggest city. Um, Washington, PA, and Greensburg, both which have established state courts, um, at that point are probably a little bit bigger than Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh is the most rapidly growing. In Western Pennsylvania at this time, 7,000 of them show up and they have Liberty Poles, uh, they have flags that uh, say, don't tread on me. Uh, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of individuals patrolling with guns and the 
the, the crowd is beginning to build onto its own momentum. And some of the individuals, especially the zealots in the crowd, are referring to Pittsburgh as the new Sodom and that it needed to be destroyed for its decadence. And millennialists who believed that the end of days was coming uh, thought that Pittsburgh needed to be transformed into the people's city, you know, that shining city on the hill uh, that was promised in the 17th century. Uh, so uh, there is literally thousands of people a few miles away from Pittsburgh who are potentially going to sack the city. Fortunately, cooler heads are going to prevail. I'd ask you a question, too. Do you, do you believe there were 7,000 people there at that field? Well, two points to that. No, uh, <laughs> because whenever you look at all the accounts, it's embellished, yeah. right? Uh, even before the Watermelon Army gets here, they say that 2,000 rebels had left. Uh, so, so I don't believe that. But here's the deal. They started to use violence and intimidation against people that were in favor of supporting the federal government. So you can't tell who was there because they believed in the cause or who was there because they were fearful of retribution. So these militias and their organization would tell their members that you have to be at this location at this time. So it's, it's hard to even say that all those people would have been in rebellion. There were, uh, you know, the 1790 census, there's about 25,000 people in Washington County. So you would have to assume if, if Washington County is truly the hotbed of this, this rebellion, that one out of every three people was coming up to uh, Braddock's Field. But I agree with you on the point that uh, I, I really think that they were trying to intimidate Pittsburgh. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, the last bastion of federalism out here in western Pennsylvania, they're trying to intimidate those people into switching sides. Like one of the fun things to, to study if you go into this, this era is that there's so much rumor going on. If you read the primary sources, you know, especially George Clymer's report of the, of the insurrection and, and what was happening here, it's so exaggerated. Uh, and rumor and innuendo and uncertainty is, is part of trying to understand this, uh, this period because those are the reports that the federal government is getting and often they, they have to act upon those. When you get out to uh, Braddock's Field, too, you've get all, you, you get all these people uh, making speeches both for and against, mostly for rebellion. Um, but you've got a couple of them, and I think we, we talked a little bit earlier about a funny story with Henry Brackenridge, who really has a knack for having a foot in both camp, because I think he's trying to uh, really lessen his odds of failure, let's say. Um, but uh, at one point, somebody says, you know, um, should we attack and uh, you know should we attack the federal army down at the fort and uh <laughs> Brackenridge says well absolutely i think we should he goes and then the, the you know they start to get fired up and they, he says if you don't mind losing several thousand men yourself he does say that. <laughs> and uh so uh it, you know it, it's one of those things he's i don't know if he's being clever or if he's just again really trying to walk that tightrope so that he doesn't get dragged in to either side he's a Brackenridge is a really fascinating guy um as somebody that uh, the modern day representative of the Nevilles, I will tell you, the Nevilles hate him, but they're with him all the time. Uh, we were talking a little earlier about Presley. Presley, Neville, and Brackenridge, everywhere they go, they're together. Even uh, the night uh, after Bower Hill is attacked, um, Presley rides out with a, a couple of guys. I think there's eight guys that ride out on horseback, and Brackenridge goes with them. Um, um, even though, given the chance, they'll throw each other under the bus at any, mm -hmm. any given time. But uh, Brackenridge, uh, Brackenridge and Presley are always there, and it's almost like a point-counterpoint. You've got Brackenridge, who's really a pro-Democrat-Republican, uh, 
and then Presley, who's truly an ardent Federalist, and those two, but yet they're always together. Can we talk about uh, Washington's ultimate decision to use force to put this rebellion down? He'll lead the army as commander-in-chief. How did he come to that conclusion? I would tell you that that conclusion was preordained. Um, not uh, very recently, I came across the, um, some legislation that was passed in December of 1793. In fact, um, not too long ago, they sold the, the, the copy of the bill at auction. Um, but this uh, legislation actually was the legislation approving and um, detailing the state's participation should a federal army need to be called up, a federal militia needing to be called up, 13,000 men. Um, and it outlines in December what each state's commitment would be and how the federal government and the state's governments would be uh, responsible financially for this. So I would tell you, if you look, look at that, um, as much as I hate to admit it, those that say Hamilton almost sort of uh, preordained some of these things to happen, it really was, uh, they were ready to go. Um, that's that's how, in August, after this happens and after word gets back to Washington in Philadelphia, um, the Army's ready to go by September. That's a, a, that's a dramatic and uh, really rapid call-up of states' militias. And many of the individuals that participated in the Watermelon Army, particularly those in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, uh, did not want to be there. They were drafted. And there were literally anti-draft riots. So they, so with the exception of New Jersey, that seemed to read Hamilton's pseudonym Tully and and, and be ramped up in their desire to punish the, the Western people, uh, most of them uh, disliked the service, did not want to be part of the army at all. Um, the, you, interesting story. The Watermelon Army is uh, it, it was called. A, do you want to elaborate on that? Or well, it appears in editorials during the period, and it is a way to kind of. Uh, poke fun at the army to say that it isn't particularly uh, a strong unit. And it's interesting because uh, New Jersey took a special offense to it and their governor Howe wrote a song, Dash Across the Mountains, Jersey Blue, to try to encourage the people in New Jersey to fight and participate in, in, in that army. So it was viewed by many as kind of a joke. Now, the U.S. Army is marching 13,000 men. Uh, do we see a big battle at the end of it? I would say no. <laughs> I say it's a it's a very dramatic lead up to a very undramatic finish. Um. Yeah, the biggest thing for me in studying the Watermelon Army is that Washington parades 3,000 soldiers from his headquarters at the Espy House in Bedford, and from there he leaves the army in command of Lee and Hamilton. Washington was careful that their soldiers could not steal anything from civilians. Well. As soon as Washington leads, Hamilton and Lee changed that policy to allow the army to impress supplies from local farms and local people. So you had families in October and November who had worked an entire year to have enough food and enough wood for the winter uh, for having all of that to be taken by this army. Uh, most significantly is that whenever Hamilton and Lee get to the West, they subordinate civilian authority for military authority and begin massive roundups of suspected insurgents. What you spoke of with the, uh, you know, where Washington really kind of kept a tight rein. I, one of the reasons I think Hamilton and Lee changed that policy was at that point they had deemed they were in enemy territory. They were really looking at this as a full-blown military campaign. Um, Hamilton's always 
big on doing everything militarily. Um, he, uh, I, I think at the point when they left Bedford and they had just marched into Fayette County, they now were um, officially in, um, you know, one of the six counties that were considered to be open rebellion. Uh, Fayette, Westmoreland, Washington, Allegheny, and then the two counties that were in Virginia, Ohio, and Monongalia. Mm -hmm. um, so those, um, I think that was one of the reasons. Again, Hamilton gets a bad rap for really you know, kind of cutting the army loose. But I think he said, I think he believed that he was, he was in enemy territory and he was gonna deprive them of their supplies. I want to believe Rob on this one. <laughs> but that said, uh, I think that, of course he's right, but, 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 but I think that one of the reasons he did that was to show the brutal force of the federal government to the people of Western Pennsylvania. And that if you had thought that there was a distant government that didn't affect your life, you changed your mind whenever they occupied your farm, whenever they stole the food out of your house, whenever they took your horses. So as much as it was a military necessity and a practical matter, I also think that it was a show of force to every person living in Western Pennsylvania. Keep in mind that Hamilton, say what you will about him, he's always a big picture guy. And this is ultimately, whether it's ransacking someone's farm or showing a large force, this is a way of him establishing that the federal government is in charge and eventually will have the right to levy taxes. What happens to the Whiskey Rebels when the federal forces arrive? Well, there's a, a particularly terrible occurrence known as the Dreadful Night, which is November of 1794. And that's whenever Lee and Hamilton give the power to their subordinates to round up insurgents. They had three lists that differentiated the status of the individuals, some who were in open rebellion, some who supported the federal government, and some who were witness to rebellious activity. But they threw those lists out and just started to arrest literally hundreds of people. Uh, among the most sadistic individuals involved was a man named Anthony Blackbeard White of the, the New Jersey militia. And what he did was he took 30 members of the Mingo Creek Association in these midnight raids uh, rounded them up, put them in the cold basement of a tavern, and deprived them of food and water for almost three days. It became so bad that his junior officers came to him and said, if we don't change uh, the treatment of these individuals, they're gonna die. So literally hundreds and hundreds of people were rounded up. It became so bad that women dressed as though they were pregnant, and they would go to local courts begging for their uh, husbands or begging for their sons to be released. So hundreds of people were rounded up and some estimates say that 2,000 rebels had already fled down the 981 mile Ohio River to Kentucky and freedom. Ultimately though, um, you know, it, while they rounded up hundreds, um, many of those folks that they did round up, they didn't have the appetite for this open rebellion. At, when, it, when it came to it, when they weren't part of the, the mob at Braddock's Field, um, they were happy to sign the, uh, the Oath of Loyalty. Mm -hmm. And with that, most of these people uh, did sign the Oath of Loyalty and they went back to their farms. And you know, this 13,000 man army and this open rebellion kind of fizzles into nothing. They wind up marching, um, I believe it was 33 men back mm -hmm. to Philadelphia. Um, they, they leave in early December and they march back to Philadelphia with these 33 men, get there on Christmas Eve, um, yep. parade down the street of Philadelphia. It's a hero's welcome. Washington comes out to meet them on his horse. Um, and, it, it, and it's a big event. Ironically, less than two months later, um, all but three of those 
people were pardoned. Um, Washington, I really think if you want to look at the uh, really the, the incredible nature of Washington's leadership as a, as a president, as our first president, um, if you look at Washington's leadership, he, he, he doesn't want to divide this country. He wants to unify. So he immediately pardons all but three, um, the three worst. Um, and even those guys, once they're tried, the cases are thrown out. The only one that's really not pardoned was David Bradford, who they never did catch. Uh, David Bradford uh, was one of the leaders of the rebellion um, in Washington, PA. In fact, today you can still visit his house in Washington, PA. Um, it's open for tours. But uh, Bradford escaped, uh, knew he was going to be rounded up as one of the leaders, and he escaped to uh, what was at the time Spanish territory, which today would be Louisiana. What should the takeaway be for viewers? Why is this event important? What does it reveal about our country? I'd tell you this is arguably um, one of the most, as I said earlier, one of the most underappreciated events in American history. You know, Harry Truman wrote a story uh, when he was in college um, and wrote this uh, that the Whiskey Rebellion was one of the five most pivotal events in American history. It truly establishes the sovereignty of the federal government. Um, it gives the government not only the right to tax, uh, which comes from the Constitution and the people, but it allows the, the, the federal government to enforce that right to tax, and that's important. And I think that's, you know, as I said earlier, Hamilton gets a bad rap, but Hamilton, I really think, understood that without the ability to enforce, taxation's a, a moot issue. And as Secretary of the Treasury, he, he really is interested in taxation. He's interested in not only establishing the debt, but paying it down and reestablishing new debt. That's what's going to establish credit, and that's the only way that America was going to survive. Uh, to me, the biggest takeaway from the Whiskey Rebellion is that change in America is not the result of bullets, beatings, or burnings, but change in America results from the ballot box. So the ideology of moderate rebels like Brackenridge, like Finley, like Gallatin, become the established American political norms from 1800 to 1824. So change in America is done through the vote, not through violence. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.